Our second reading for today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, beginning with the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, descend afresh on all of us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us. For your glory. Amen. Well, normally on Pentecost Sunday... I would preach on the text that was our first text for today, the famous text about the great day of Pentecost. But since I've already preached on that several times before, and I like doing something a little bit new, I decided to to instead preach on this passage in Genesis 11, the great story of the Tower of Babel. It's actually a story that I've never preached on before, so it gives me a chance to try out some new things. And it gives all of us a chance to look at the text a little more closely. On the face of it, this text is what's called an ideology. It's a text that explains things, kind of like if you've read any Hans Christian Andersen stories and how the leopard got its spots. This text here explains how humanity got spread throughout all the earth and where languages came from. This text falls in Genesis 11, just before a switch in the Genesis account. It's part of what's known as the primeval history The history before Abraham. Genesis 12, the next chapter, begins with the story of Abraham. These first 11 chapters are often said to be in the genre of a myth. So here we have a myth that explains how humanity got scattered in different languages from here. But like most myths, this myth here of the Tower of Babel does potentially have lessons for us, deeper lessons that might help us think more deeply about our faith and who we are. And I'd like to explore that. The story begins with this remarkable scene. All of humanity having one language. All of humanity working together. And they come to Mesopotamia, that land in between the Tigris and Euphrates. And there they have a chance to go out and do something. What a natural human instinct is that. Humanity gets together and they want to build something, create something, do something great, do something wonderful. It's an instinct that's implanted in every one of us. And they get to do it together. 
and create something magnificent, create a tower that no one thought could exist that rises into the sky so that they could make a name for themselves, lest they be scattered. How often is that true within uh, ourselves and our communities? We need something to rally around, something to, to, to put our stake in in order for us to be fully united. I think about uh, some of my days when back, way back in the day when I was an athlete, um, in high school, I was a football player. If you've ever played football, what an incredible team sport football is. I know those who don't like football might critique it for its violence or other things. But when you're actually playing it, each play, each set, each snap of the ball has its own complicated plays on both sides, offense and defense. And all 11 people have to work together. If one person messes up his assignment, then the entire play falls apart. And when you're on the field, you can feel the team that just rely on one other team pulsing. It's an incredible feeling. My senior year in high school, uh, my team, the team that we had wasn't the most talented team. The teams the previous two years have been much more talented. But the one thing that we had that year was a group of seniors who worked together well. And the one thing we could do was execute. And so unlike the teams the previous two years, we were the ones that ended up being league champions because we could work together as a team. When I was in college, I was a rower. Uh, I rowed crew, as they say. And again, talk about, a team, talk about a sport that's an ultimate team sport. If you've ever been in a rowing shell, these are incredibly narrow bottom shells. So you even lean slightly one way or another, and the whole boat tips. And you have these long oars. And literally, if you move your arm up a little bit too much of that, the entire boat tips. This is a boat that's 60 feet long. And so in order to get the boat moving at its maximum speed, all eight rowers have to place their blades in the water at the identical time apply pressure at the exact time and remove the blade at the exact time and then stay in perfect precision. Talk about a team sport. All working together as one. And it's remarkable what can be accomplished when we all work together as one. This, this past week, I don't know about you, but I, uh, especially someone who likes history, couldn't help but notice that it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. Think of how much the United States was able to accomplish in World War II with a common goal and a common purpose in working together. I mean, it was remarkable when you see the entire economy focused on one goal. Everybody in the country focused on one thing. And even whether you were a soldier fighting on the front lines or someone working in logistics or someone working in a factory, everybody played their part. Even little kids were going and picking up scrap metal that they could save that could be used for the war effort. Everyone was involved. And they were able to do something that was pretty remarkable. You know, and you look at sometimes in, in, in the United States uh, culture today, uh, there, are, there are those who, who lament sort of uh, or look, look, look back uh, in nostalgia on some times in the past, particularly uh, for those who were raised in the 1950s and 1950s as a time of, as a time of, of, of relative cultural uh, homogeneity, uh, of unity within the country, of certain acceptance of basic values together, of economic prosperity. You can see why there are people who look back at that era and say, gosh, you know, we want to get back there. So we've got this beginning opening scene of people working together. Something to celebrate, right? Well, then the scene shifts and God shows up. And in classic, uh, classic Yahwist fashion, this anthrop- anthropomorphic God walks down from the heavens, uh, descends from the heavens, and sees the city and the tower. And then, as the text tells us, uh, God decides to scatter the people 
and give them different languages. And the standard interpretation of this is, of course, the reason is human beings are too proud. They're trying to be like God, and their penalty for trying to be like God is to be scattered in different, and given different languages. That's the standard interpretation. But this is what I love about biblical texts. You start reading them more closely, and you're like, is something else going on here? Am I missing something? Especially when you start reading more stuff on this. I mean, the, the actions of humanity in that first section, that first half of the story, doesn't necessarily have to be bad. You know, again, they're making a name for themselves. That doesn't, have to, that, that doesn't imply that they want to be God. This is, uh, most, most scholars say this is based on the Babylonian ziggurats, those sort of step pyramids that you see uh, in Mesopotamia. Well, according to uh, Herodotus, among others, these step pyramids, the reason why they were there is because they believed that God was in the heavens and the shrines were on top of the pyramids. That the pyramids were, these step pyramids were a way to get closer to God, to honor God, to worship God. That was the original purpose of these things. And then you look at the, the action of God. It's almost like God is jealous, you know. Let's go, let's go scatter them out because, because otherwise anything will be possible for them. Gosh, we don't want that. Then, then they might challenge us, the sort of God and the hosts of heaven. They might challenge us. So we have to prevent that. That doesn't sound like a really good God, right? Is it, is it just me? Did you, did you pick that up too when you're reading it through? It makes me wonder, is there something else going on here? Maybe. It's another way to read the text that might have a different message. I'm someone who, um, like I know, because I bring this up uh, in other sermons, I'm someone who does like to succumb uh, to our national habit of streaming videos and streaming TV shows. And one show that I got into pretty intensely a couple years ago was a show on Amazon Prime called Man in the High Castle. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that one. Production value is phenomenal. Apparently, it's based on a book that I have not read. The series was very good. The basic premise is, what if the Nazis had gotten the atom bomb first? And so, like, in the opening montage, there's this scene of Washington, D.C. being leveled by an atom bomb. And so, in Men in the High Castle, the Nazis win the war. And so there's this scene of what would America be like occupied, at least the eastern two-thirds, by Nazi Germany. And there are these scenes in Berlin, in New York, where society is thriving because everyone's unified, right? You have people working together towards a common cause. Hitler's Reich. But of course, you've got scenes where the Gestapo is everywhere. You've got these very touching scenes with this one boy who's the son of one of the main characters, has a genetic illness, and therefore has to be expunged because that's what the Nazis do. Those who are unworthy are either enslaved or eliminated. Sometimes unity of purpose and unity of stuff, even though you can accomplish great things technologically, might not be good. Or there's that movie Gattaca. You ever see that movie Gattaca? This came out 20 years ago. It's where you have uh, this futuristic world where everyone's determined by their DNA. When you're born, they run DNA tests, and they say, okay, so this is what you should be doing with your life based on this DNA test. This is to maximize efficiency of society, to have society thrive, because everything's based on genetics, right? And the great theme of the movie is, well, no, there's also the human spirit involved. How do you account for that? You look at World War II, 
Great effort, right? Everything great. Of course, we also uh, locked up Japanese-American citizens, all in the cause of unity. You look at the 1950s, this great, wonderful time of culture moving forward. Uh, this is also the time of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. I'm sure many of you have read that book. This is Betty Friedan, again, launching the sort of modern feminist movement with this book, where she writes about how suffocated she felt where the only thing she could do was, or the only thing, she was supposed to be so happy being a housewife, and she's like, I was just miserable. There must be something else. But in the 1950s U.S., for someone like Betty Friedan, no, that, that's what you're supposed to do. This is the one role you can do. You can be a good housewife. Or you look at you know, issues of civil rights in the 1950s. You look at the anti-communism efforts. Again, that whole sense of we have in God we trust on our currency. And we say under God in the, in the Pledge of Allegiance because of the 1950s, because that was anti-communism. Communists were atheists. And so good Americans went to church. Again, unity of purpose, but comes at cost. Now, let's, let's, let's just theoretically look at this Tower of Babel story. Think about what it would be like to have a major construction project in the ancient world. What would that sound like to you if, say, you were the average person on the streets? What do you think that would mean? probably mean that uh, those big construction projects, who built them? Slaves did. This is not a democracy. This is not, there's not like union labor in ancient Mesopotamia. When they, say big, when they see big building projects and big pyramids, what's the first thing they think of? People who are going to be enslaved are going to be building those. This, is a, this, this, this test could very easily be read as, hey, you see these building, this, building this big city and building these big pyramids? Well, that means... Uh, oppression of other people in order to make it happen in this singular oneness. And maybe just maybe the they that God is talking about, lest they are able to do these different things, maybe the they are, are, are actually the ruling class. Let's disperse them and spread people out lest they do whatever they want. As in, say, the Nazis and men in the high castle. Maybe, just maybe, the scattering, the multiple languages, is actually a good thing. Liberation theology. Liberation theology is a theological system that tries to read texts against the grain from the perspective of those who are oppressed and on the margins. So you read a text like the Tower of Babel and you say, what would, what would the Tower of Babel text look like to someone who was oppressed? Maybe the scattering abroad is a chance for freedom and liberation. Because again, with diversity comes liberation. You can't have liberation without diversity. Because God has made us all different. In order to have true liberation, you have to be able to celebrate the differences that, 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 that God has made in each one of us. Differences of interests and talents. Differences in gender, sexual orientations, gender identity. Differences in culture. Without being able to celebrate these things, you can't be free. You can't celebrate who you are. I would contend that that's a central message of this text. At least the message that I take away from it. Because human beings are scattered across the earth, because we have different languages, we're able to live into the God-given diversity that God has given us so that we can be free. 
Think of all the great art and culture that, as, that came about as a result of the diversity of human expressions that God has given in the world. Now, today is, of course, the day of Pentecost. It's a day when we celebrate the birth of the church. And last week, I talked about the importance of unity. How, Christian, how can Christians model discussion about hard topics? And last week, I mentioned abortion in particular. But one thing that's important to note with this whole discussion of unity is that unity is all well and good, provided it doesn't lead to oppression and the stifling of diversity and different opinions. That's one of the messages that comes out of the Tower of Babel story, for me anyway. And look at the church as a great example. Think of the diversity of the church and all we learn from it. The Roman Catholic tradition can lift up the importance of history, tradition, liturgy, that can help enrich the broad scope of churches. You've got the Eastern Orthodox churches that celebrate mystery and the mystical element of life and our relationship with God. You have reformed churches like this one that celebrate rational thinking, the life of the mind, and transforming society into the, uh, into the kingdom of God. Those have been things that have been the reformed tradition from the very beginning. You've got a Pentecostal tradition that could help reignite the spirit and the importance of living in the spirit. And what does that look like? Even Bible churches, though I might have a lot of critique for Bible churches, even Bible churches can lift up the importance of a radical democracy where anyone can have a Bible and think for themselves and find out their path to God. This incredible diversity of Christian churches, of Christian expressions, I think makes us stronger rather than weaker, as long as we can celebrate those differences and see them as a gift of God. So, as we go forth on this Pentecost Sunday, hopefully filled with the Holy Spirit, I ask you to think about how you see diversity in the world. What sort of diversity in the world do you have a hard time accepting or do you not like, and why? There are those that are different from you that are easy to accept. There are those who are different from you that it's much harder to accept. How can we celebrate diversity, even sometimes when it challenges us? I do think that the vision that God has for us is not a melting pot in society. But again, it's this wonderful patchwork quilt. That when you put it all together, and every bit brings its own colors and differences and dynamics to the bit, you see this wonderful, chaotic, but beautiful quilt that is a true reflection of the Tower of Babel. And I would say a reflection for what God wants for society.